So we are in a series that we're calling Faith Foundations as we've been going through First Timothy. And, and perhaps uh, one of the most important things that I think Paul is going to say in this letter is this, this text that was just read for us ultimately becomes the hub of what Paul is trying to communicate to these Christians. If you note that he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. One of the things that I think is interesting immediately to to note is what Paul is going to do as we move through these verses is he's going to show ultimately the goodness of God. And he's going to show it in a number of different facets in trying to help us to to understand that this is ultimately one of our greatest faith foundations is seeing the goodness of God. You'll notice that as we just read there, as he as he begins this this message to them, that this is the the, the thing that needs to be held on to. I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how to behave as the people of God. Which just kind of stop and think about that idea for a minute. It matters to God how we act. If you say, now the whole reason I'm putting all of this down is if I don't get there as soon as I want to get there, here's what I want you to know. That I'm putting these things down so that you will know how to behave because you're the people of God. You're the church of the living God. This is who you are. And understanding who you are then determines and really represents that behavior. That how we act is important to God. And if I understand who I am, that that changes those actions, that way of thinking, that behavior. In fact, you'll notice how he he puts it there. He says how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'd, I'd ask it like this. Why is it so important, Paul, that about how we behave? Why does it matter about our actions? It's probably an important aspect for all of Scripture. Why is God always telling us what to do and not to do? <laughs> Why does He always have to say to us, now if you're mine, you do this, and if you're not mine, then that's this kind of behavior. I want you to see it there in the text that He makes it clear. He says, you're the church of the living God. Notice the pillar and buttress of the truth. In essence, our actions matter because we're supposed to be displaying to the world God's truth. Our actions are vitally important because he says, do you understand who you are? You're the household of faith. You're the church of the living God. You're the buttress and the pillar. This is foundation of the truth. That when we live our lives, ultimately, what we are doing is living it in such a way so that people can see God's truth in our actions. In fact, you might remember earlier in this book, back in chapter 2, He said something very important where he said that God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And now he turns around and says, you're the pillar of that truth. You're the support. You're that buttress. I want all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, how was that going to happen? By what you say and what you do. That's how that's going to happen. That you are the church of the living God. And you must then represent that. And you must uphold that truth then for all the world to see. I think that's such an important picture given to us. Sometimes we lose sight of why we're here. We lose sight of our purpose. We lose sight of ultimately what's important. And God gives us this purpose right here in telling us that I want you to know how to act, how to behave as the people of God, as the household of God, as you support the truth of God in the world, that you put it on display so that people will see it in your lives. We've talked about these things quite a bit. Friends, that goes all the way back to Genesis 1. All the way back to Genesis 1 that we're going to make people in our image. We're reflecting God. We're showing God to the world. We are imaging that truth. They see it in us. They see it in our behavior. And they see it in our words. They're supposed to see God. And that's what Paul is saying is I'm writing these things because I could be delayed. And I want you to know who you are. You have a purpose. Well, what is that truth? Well, Verse 16 is certainly a a, a condensing of the truth that we live by and the truth that we display. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. I want you to see that the foundation that He lays, the truth that we are supposed to be displaying to people, is Jesus lived in the flesh, He died for our sins, He rose from the dead, and He ascended into heaven. It's interesting that there are times when those writers will boil things down. And I want you to notice he boils down to resurrection and ascension. You're going to draw it down right there. Resurrection is everything. Our faith rests on the resurrection of Christ. We are displaying and proclaiming that particular truth. That's the pillar of truth that we are upholding. Jesus did live. Jesus did die. He did raise from the dead three days later. And He did ascend back onto the throne and is seated at the right hand of God. And I think what is important with that is the very next line in verse 16. And he was vindicated by that. That was the vindication. The scriptures constantly point to the resurrection of Jesus as the vindicating moment. This proved who he said he was. Romans chapter 1, showing or proving to be the Son of God by the resurrection. That's it. The resurrection's everything. The resurrection is the key foundation. So much so that the rest of those lines that are given there are about the resurrection proofs. They went around proclaiming. Angels proclaimed it. That's ultimately the first proof is all the disciples and the angels saying, He's not here. (laughs) He's risen. 
And then the disciples going and proclaiming, He's not in the tomb, He's risen. The resurrection is the fundamental truth. We've talked about these things a few times. And it's not that the other things are not important. They absolutely are when it comes to the message of God. But may we never forget, and may we always realize that the key hub of our faith is Jesus risen from the dead. That's everything. That's everything else spins around that truth. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not raise from the dead, nothing else matters. That's everything to the faith. And notice that's the big thing that he's pointing out here as he brings this together. We as the people of God are upholding that. And we're displaying that. And we're proclaiming that. We're the ones telling the world that's what happened. Friends, that's probably one of the most important things we need to do right now. People don't think there even was a Jesus. It was just, you know, a myth and a fable. Even though historical data even and documentation outside of the Scriptures declare Him to be true and real. But we live in a time in a world right now that suggests if I didn't see it with my own eyes, it didn't exist. It's a strange phenomenon we live in right now. You know, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, it must not have happened. That, that, that gives you a very small world. And one of the biggest things that we have to proclaim is historically accurate. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And we got to tell people that. That's what's on our lips. That's the message. That's the key. That's the foundation. That's the truth we support. Which leads to the next paragraph. I don't. The chapter break's not helpful right here because where Paul goes is telling us a very unfortunate situation. The reason why it is important for us to know this truth and to display this truth not only in proclaiming resurrection, but living the resurrection, showing that in our behavior and our actions, that how we behave, how the household of God matters, is because, he says in these first three verses of chapter 4, there's going to be deviations from that message. There are going to be people who are going to leave the faith. Verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice how he begins that. It's been declared by God that in later times, people were going to leave the faith. That's sad. But it's supposed to not be startling then. Paul says, God has said, people are going to walk away. People are going to leave the faith. And not only are they going to leave the faith, we noted, remember back in chapter 1, The Apostle Paul talked about two people he knew particularly, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He used the imagery there in chapter 1 about shipwrecking their faith. Just utter disaster. 
And to later come to Timothy and say, God said those kinds of things were going to happen. That people were going to come to the Lord and then they were going to walk away. They were going to leave. That they would follow these deceitful teachings. He describes it the teaching of demons and deceitful spirits. I don't know that that's specifically a particular teaching, but more a category of saying these things are evil. These things are false. These are wrong teachings. They lead you away from God. They are not of the faith. They are not pure. They're not whole. They are false. They are demonic. They're wicked. People are going to listen to that. People are going to follow after that. They're going to listen to what the false teachers say. And thus he even says in verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's also sad. They're going to wander away from the faith and there's going to be a bunch of people who are teaching that wandering away, teaching things that are false. And notice the description of verse 2 is, and they're not going to care. That what they're teaching is false. Verse 2. Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They are going to tell you things about God that are outright false. And they don't care that they're telling you false things. They don't care that they are shredding your faith. They don't care that they're trying to destroy you and pull you away. From the truth. They don't care. Consciences are seared. Insincerity of liars. What a, what a description to, to give of these false teachers. That's what they're going to want to do. Which I have said this so many times, and I, I hope if there's nothing else I've ever emblazoned upon you in my time here, is this key thing. You never, ever, ever, never exponentially never depend upon the teacher but on the scriptures teachers can lead you away and if your faith rests on a teacher you are in trouble your faith must rest upon the revealed word of God because the scriptures say people are going to come along with seared consciences and with insincerity lie to you and tell you things about God that are not true. And how are you going to know? They're very nice people. <laughs> we like them a lot. They're very kind. I haven't found a lot of false teachers that get very far being absolutely ruthless and ugly. They're usually very nice people. They're very kind. They draw people in with that. They have that kind of personality. Oh, well, why would they ever lie to me? Of course they're telling me the truth. Notice Paul says that's exactly what they're doing. Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There's a lot of reasons I teach the way I teach, but this is one of the reasons why I teach the way I teach. So that everything that I say to you would never be, Brent says thus and so, but that you read it right here. And it says it right here. It's not me coming up with some neat ideas or stringing a bunch of passages together to get you confused. It's just, let's take a paragraph and let's go. Why? Why do we always do that? Why every single week? So that your hope and faith will not rest upon me. And it will not be about anything that I say. 
Don't you dare ever have your faith on anything that I say. That's nothing to do with me. But that you would read it for yourself and it says so right here. And that's what Paul is giving these Christians right now. He says you need to be awake and realize that people are going to wander away from the faith and people are going to come along and try to cause you to wander away from the faith. That's why you need to display the truth and know the truth. Hold on to this truth. Be this buttress and pillar of truth and know the word of God because people are going to come along and try to push you off that truth. They're going to try to move you away from that. And God does not want that to happen to you. God does not want that to exist. Notice in verse 3, he decides to give even a little bit of a description of some of the false teachings that were going on at that time. They they may be curious to us, but I'll explain a little bit. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. There's two things that he, he puts his finger on is that, well, some are forbidding marriage. And one of the reasons that you see happening back then, and unfortunately I don't know that it's changed a whole lot, is there is sometimes this belief that holiness can be achieved by simply removing something. You can be holier as a single person. Paul says, no, you can't. (laughs) That kind of sounds good on paper, right? In fact, you could probably misuse a few verses in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 7 and come along and go, see, it's better if you're not married. And so you shouldn't be married. You'd be far holier if you were married. Paul says, no, 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 no. There's going to be people that come along in latter days who are teaching false things and they're going to tell you that. They're going to say that you should get away from marriage and holiness is not tied to your marital status. I think that's an important thing. Sometimes in, in congregations there can be a distinction almost of the singles and the married And the singles somehow are like over here in a lesser class of people and the married people. And it's curious. There's nothing better or worse about your marital condition. That's not where holiness is obtained. Holiness is not achieved by those decisions. And yet Paul says that there'd be people who would come along and say such things. Or they would come along and say, well, you know, you need to abstain from certain foods. If you would stay away from eating these certain things, that will also make you holier. And Paul says that's not it either. It is somewhat interesting to consider that world that existed at that time. One of the things that, that happened in that day and time, it, it may have been beginning right now, a little bit of, of cultural reference to, to get a sense of it, but one of the things that may have been going on at, at that time is some of the early forms of, of Gnosticism. And you know, it doesn't matter that you know that word. But one of the big deals about that was this statement that, well, anything that was of the flesh or anything that was tied to the material world was inherently evil. 
And you can kind of get a sense of why you would see things being taught like this as you get toward the end of the first century. You see the Apostle John addressing some of that as well. It's the idea, well, things in the world are bad, so you need to stay away from it. And you'll be holier if you stay away from the material realm. And that your flesh is just inherently evil. And it's bad. So don't get married because those are fleshly things. In fact, it seems like 1 Corinthians 7 seems to be relating off of that. It's good not to marry, right? And Paul goes, what? What are you talking about? That's, that's, that's not not right. But there was this kind of thinking that existed in that world. And I don't know that religions left it a whole lot. And the idea of if you just, you know, separate yourself from all physical things... That will make you holy. I think one of the things that we quickly realize if you think about that idea long enough is if you think about Jesus' words when he starts talking about, well, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And you start thinking about if you start cutting things off like this, where is ultimately the real problem at? It's inside. It's inside. You can try to find your holiness by cutting off these things, but the problem's in us. You'll just find another thing because the problem's inside. The problem's right here. That's the issue. And that's why I think Paul is coming along and saying, you've got people trying to forbid all of these things. That doesn't make any sense. That's not where you're going to find holiness at all. Especially as he he goes on in verse 3 and says, these are things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God didn't make things sinful. The problem is how we use them. That's the issue. The issue is not the thing. The issue is how we use that thing. <laughs> I think that's a really great picture that you have of the Apostle Paul giving us here. Is that this image that God has made things to be received with thanksgiving. This is ultimately the goodness of God. I titled this the goodness of God and I want you to see where he's tracked into this. You have people coming along saying, you need to avoid all these things to be holy. And the Apostle Paul comes along and said, no, things have been made by God. Life has been made by God. To be received with thanksgiving. God didn't have to make food taste good. It would help me out a lot if it didn't. <laughs> He didn't have to do that. You know, we could have these blank, bland, neutral tasting cubes. <laughs> that you, there's your energy. There's your calories that you need to produce energy. He could have done that. He didn't have to make things be so delicious. <laughs> Why did he do that? Because he's a good God. And it's to be received with thanksgiving. That the food that you eat, you don't go, I don't know, I don't know, but God made that good. How great is it that God made food taste good? 
Almost to a detriment. (laughs) He made it taste good. Marriage. God didn't have to make marriage. He could have just said, everybody be alone and be on Facebook and pretend like you have a bunch of friends and be in isolation. You know, and we won't have any, you know, real relationships. He could have done that. He could have just made us individuals, just completely isolated. Just be you all by yourself. Why did he do it? Because he's a good God. Because he does want you to enjoy life. Holiness is not about avoiding life. Sometimes religion can paint life that way. You know, avoid life. Avoid what's going on. Avoid all those things. I want you to see that it is a false teaching to say that, well, things in the world are just bad, and so enjoying life is a bad thing. The problem is, where do you draw that line if you if you accept that idea? If what God has created is bad and we should not be enjoying what God created, then where do you stop in cutting things off? You can't. But to see that we serve a good God and what He's trying to give us is a beautiful picture that whatever it is that we have, that we would receive it with thanksgiving. Here's what God wants. If you have a car, be thankful to God that you have a car. Don't despise your car. Be glad you have a car. If you have a job, don't despise that you have a job. Be thankful to God that you have a job. And if you have money, don't despise money. You'll get to chapter 6. We'll get there. It's not money. He's going to say it's not that. (laughs) Be thankful to God that He gave it to you. You have clothes? Don't be upset about that. That's not bad. Be grateful to God that you have all the clothes that are hanging in your closet. You have a home. Don't despise that. Everything is supposed to be received with thanksgiving. That's what God wants. You imagine, just think about it with your uh, with children. Here you are as your parents and it's the birthday and you're giving them all their gifts and, and they start opening and oh, oh, I shouldn't use all this. This is terrible. Why would you give me all these things? Because I love you. <laughs> and we sometimes do that with God. Oh, I shouldn't do da- God's giving you these blessings. Be thankful. Be grateful. And we have to recognize in our country and in our era of time, we have a lot. We have a lot. We have a lot. We have a lot. And what God is saying is so be grateful. Be grateful that you can go places. Be grateful that you have a job. Be grateful that you can rest. Be grateful that you can work. Be grateful for every aspect of your life, whatever it is that God has given you and that you are able to enjoy. It is to be received with thanksgiving. That is the whole picture is that God wants us to see life as a gift of his. Now, this is hard because of what the flip side of that means. 
that means I'm not owed to live to 90 years old with the life that I want. It's a gift, whatever it is that's been given to me, however it goes. It's a gift. And I'm just grateful to God for the gift. And if 45 years is it, then 45 years is it, because 45 years was a gift. How much? How many years did God owe me? None. And God doesn't owe me for my life to go the way I want it to go. Or the vision I had in mind when I was a kid about how it all be. Life is a gift of God. This is the kind of perspective that he wants these Christians to have. To see verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So we should talk about that because that's going to be the big conclusion to the lesson. Because Paul is not saying, so whatever you do is fine as long as you thank God. No, that's not what it says. Read that carefully. That's not it. But what I think the Apostle Paul does right here is give us a very useful life test on how to look at things in this world. That end sentence there, for everything created by God is good, so don't look at things and go, oh, well, that's bad. No, no, it's it's how we use it that's bad. Things are good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So here is... You know what God says. You know the truth. We started there. Here's the truth of God. You know what is right and wrong. You know what He's decreed. And it's sanctified through that knowledge and through prayer. So now notice this. Number one. So whatever I'm doing, can I thank God for what I'm doing or am I ashamed of it? That's a great test. Everything has been created by God is good. The question is how you use it. So now put that to the test. And whatever it is you're doing, can you go to God and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me this or allowing this to happen. This is great. Or is what you're doing something that you'd say, I can't take that to God. I'm ashamed of that. It's all about our usage. Not mere avoidance. But what are you doing with the things of God? How are you using your life? How are you using your blessings? How are you using your wealth and your job and your rest? How are you using those things? Are you using those things in such a way that you can go before God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for how I've been able to enjoy this moment been able to enjoy wonderful food to use the text enjoying food or enjoying marriage enjoying whatever it is in your life to be able to go before God and say I am so grateful that you gave that to me I'm so grateful for this moment I'm so grateful for this time I'm so grateful for these things or would you go to God and say I'm ashamed of that I'm hiding that. I wouldn't be able to proclaim that to people. I think that's the idea of what verses 4 and 5 are getting at. 
Don't look at the world and say life is bad. But are you using the things that God has given you so that you can be thankful to Him and praise Him? Or are you using it in such a way that's condemning? Which leads, I think, to one of the biggest issues that can be really tricky when it comes to how God blesses us. We probably live in an unparalleled time, at least historically. As we mentioned, all the wealth that we have. I mean, who would, who would live in a time where you think about all the myriads of options of food you can eat? The myriads of options of clothing you can eat? I mean, eat uh, clothing you can wear. Yeah, I don't want to eat clothes. But just think about food, clothing, our homes. Just think about everything that we're able to experience and enjoy. Are we then turning to God with every blessing that we identify and giving him thanks? Or are we just more about the blessing itself? More concerned about my stuff, my wealth, my job, my things, my rest, all those things. Or do we take every bit of what God has given us and go, thank you, God. This is amazing. But we are able to enjoy in this moment. That God has blessed us so richly. And that we would see then that everything that we have, everything that has been given to us, every minute that we enjoy, every breath that we take is a gift given to us by God. It is just, I believe, so easy to miss. And I want you to think about how radically it changes life when you look at it at that perspective. When we look at life through this lens, And see the goodness of God in this light. And understand that everything is just a gift. Everything is a blessing. And nothing is owed to me. Nothing is deserved. Nothing has to go the way that I say it has to go. And we display that to the world. That we are showing people Jesus is everything. His resurrection is everything. I depend completely on that. Not on the stuff but on Him. And I want you to know that I'm praising Him for all that I've been able to enjoy in my life. That's the proclamation to the world. That's what we're supposed to be telling people. Is we aren't living for here and we're not living for our stuff and it's not about our blessings and look at all my things, but about a God who loves people so much that He richly blesses. Even to a nation that's turned its back on him. He's richly blessed. And that's what we're telling people. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at him. Look at what he's done. That that's the kind of goodness we need to see. That we are seeing who he is. We are rejecting things that pull us away from that. All of the world wants us to pull away from this truth. About who God is. And what He has done for every single one of us. And I think about that song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. 
is there a point that we would ever stop? (laughs) I mean, you try doing that. You start getting tired because you can't think of it. I mean, there's so many. You just go, I just, I can't eat. And I usually end by going and all the rest I can't think of right now. Because there's so many. We have to uphold the truth of the word of God. Tell people about who he is. Avoid the false. Proclaim then what true holiness looks like and honor God through that. I find it fascinating how Paul was just able to boil all of that down and just simply say, here is your key core. Here is your foundation. Live as the people of God. Display it in how you live and display it in what you say. Not being pulled away by things that are false. Don't be undermined by those who have got the seared consciences and their insincerity are lying to you. Hold on to the truth and understand that you serve a good God. And to see that goodness, to observe that on display every day. We're all going to go home or somewhere and enjoy the blessings of God that we get to eat. And then whatever we're going to do this afternoon is a blessing of God. It's easy to take schedule and life and just be like, oh, it's monotony and blah. And just slow down and think about the goodness of God in it. We're all going to get into a vehicle And for most, they have AC in them. Are we sitting in a building right now? And in comfort, enjoying talking about the things of God. To be able to work or rest this afternoon, whatever is your prerogative. It's just unbelievable what we have with this God. The Apostle Paul just wants us to recognize that it is given to us by God that everything created by God is good and nothing should be rejected from him if it's received with thanksgiving let's go to God in prayer our heavenly father it's just it's too easy It's just too easy to overlook all the good things that you have done for each of us. It's too easy to overlook how we are cared for beyond how so many would have imagined in in centuries past. Lord, it's because of you. It is because of you that we have everything that we have. Lord, thank you for giving us the life that we've been able to have up to this point in our days. Thank you for the people that you've given us into our lives. 
thank you for allowing us to have relationships to make us those kinds of people. That we can be connected to one another, to have relationships with each other. Thank you for families. Thank you for parents. Thank you for children. Lord, thank you so much that for every day that we live, you have cared for and provided for every bit of it. You have given us the places that we needed to live. You have given us the food that we needed. You have given us the clothing that we needed. And not only that, you have gone far, far beyond. Lord, how can we not be amazed at the kinds of advances that we enjoy in this world and it's because of you Lord we live in a time right now that absolutely rejects that any of it is from you Lord we pray that our world would see you as the giver of every gift Lord we know that you are in charge of all things We know that you rule over heaven and earth. And Lord, we realize that everything we have comes from you. So thank you for all that you've given us up to this point. And Lord, we trust you to care for us in whatever lies ahead. Lord, we pray for the difficulties that are across this globe. We pray regarding this virus and sickness. Lord, we know that you can control this, that you can eliminate it. We know that we will trust you regarding it. Lord, we know that nothing is promised to us. But Lord, thank you for giving us something beyond this life. Thank you for giving us our greatest hope, our greatest joy, and our greatest need. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that comes through your son. We thank you for his life. How he gave up so much. We thank you for how he lived it and teaching us and exemplifying and showing you to us. We thank you for his willingness to submit himself to death on a cross for us thank you for the hope that we find in that and thank you for the hope that we find in his resurrection Lord you have not only blessed us so richly with physical things and Lord you have blessed us so richly that you have promised that you forgive us of our sins because of your son you have blessed us so richly that we have hope of resurrection thank you for Jesus resurrection and thank you for the hope that that gives us and finally Lord it's our prayer that these blessings would never terminate on us but that we would proclaim them and display them and show them and behave as the people of God that you've called us to be Lord, help us to see when we have become self-centered and selfish, when we have not seen these things as coming from you, when we have had no regard for you, help us to see it 
Forgive us for being like that. And Lord, may we truly be image bearers of You. That we would reflect and declare and proclaim and display all of Your goodness and all that You've done to this world and to us so that more people would come to You. Lord, thank You for forgiveness because we certainly need it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to sing an invitation song now. And as we sing this song, I just think about what our Lord has done for us. Absolutely amazing. All the hope that is given to us, the life that is given to us, and that we would realize the gift that has been given to us. You have this moment today. You have the moment today to truly be in a relationship with your Father. There's no guarantees about tomorrow. I hope, if anything, with this virus, we've learned tomorrow may not be what you thought it would be. All scheduling and all plans completely changed. Don't act like you have tomorrow. Change today. Live for God today. And let Him be the foundation of your life before it's too late. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Today is your day to come to Jesus, turn away from your sins, to live for him with all of your heart, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?